0: Well, good morning from uh, Riga, and we're picking up with Matthew 6 from 25 to the end of chapter 6. So let's just uh, let's start with, uh, with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and for the record of his words and his actions and how he was and who he was. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will guide us as we try to understand the essence of what he's saying here, and that you will strengthen us to live according as he would have us live, and be and think as he would have us think, so that his spirit might become our spirit, and that we might live eternally with him. Please hear us, and before us, Father, we have words from him, from your Son, which are challenging to us in this age of materialism, and we pray, Father, for your special strength this time to really translate into practice what he has to say so that his word might become flesh in us as your word was made flesh in him. Please hear us, Father, and go with us. For his sake. Amen. Well, we're picking up then Matthew chapter 6 um, from 25. We got up to verse 24 last time. And the context is about materialism. And he says, 25, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat or what you shall drink, uh, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. It's not the life more than meat or food, and the body than clothing. I've made the point that the Sermon on the Mount was absolutely programmatic for everybody in in the first century church, and that Paul's writings are full of allusion to the Gospels. I pointed out that once every uh, three verses, of, according to my uh, limited analysis, he's alluding back to the Gospels. And when you look at the statistics, and you can see them in my book about Paul, when you look at those statistics, you see that there's some parts of the Gospel records that Paul is alluding to more than others. And Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, was without doubt one of the, the favourite sources, if you like, for his. Uh, His teaching. So, what's his allusion then to to this one here, 25? I say to you, take no thought for your life. I suggest that it's in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 6. And you may like to just uh, look over that or write it in your margin, Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing. Have anxious thought for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So Paul is picking up the question, the obvious question, I would say, well, how do we live in such a way that is uh, taking no anxious thought for the morrow? And his answer is, pray over all the little things in your secular daily life which are likely to mean that you do take anxious thought see, the Lord says, take no thought for your life. Take no anxious thought for your, your secular, physical life. And Paul says, take no anxious thought about, any, uh, about anything, because in everything, about everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So he's saying, here's how to take no thought for your life. Share all life's little needs with God and with thanksgiving be thankful for what you have that is one way i think he's saying uh, that you can without any question avoid being uh, worried about about tomorrow being thankful for what you have now he's just said that in 24 that you cannot serve god and mammon and we saw last time that mammon is there the personification of of riches and uh, of materialism we might say and he's saying that you can't operate some kind of brinkmanship whereby you do very well for yourself in this life, uh, but also you have uh, the great uh, idea of serving God as well. You, you can't actually serve both. And I've been saying that the essence of the Sermon on the Mount is about spiritual mindedness. It is all about where our hearts are. So that's, I think, the force of the word therefore. Therefore, take no th- uh, I say to you, take no thought for your life. He's saying, because your heart can only be in one place, with God or with mammon, therefore, you should especially beware, he's saying, of materialism and material worry. Because the essence of what he's saying is, you must be spiritually minded. And there's nothing like worry about materialism to take away from genuine spiritual mindedness. So the whole essence here is on how we think. Take no thought. The idea has been put around that the word, the Greek word for thought there means anxious thought. It's okay to take thought, but not anxious thought. And that, that may just about stand as a valid translation, but the, the idea is of thinking. And I, would say that uh, the wider context here is, as I say, of where your heart really is. And there's a parallel between, you can't serve God and mammon, and take no thought for your life. So to serve God is to take thought for God, to serve mammon is to take thought for mammon. So serving God is paralleled with thinking. And that is significant, because In the context in which Jesus was speaking these words, the idea of serving God was very much tied up with going to the temple, do your ritual, uh, make some sacrifice, in our terms, go to church once a week, twice a week if you're particularly righteous, uh, even stick your nose in a Bible once once or twice during the week, uh, and that's it. Whereas serving God is defined here as where your thinking is, who you are when nobody is watching. Now this emphasis about not taking thought is considerable. The Lord uses the word five times here in swift succession. Verse 25, take no thought for your life. 27, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature or to his age? Uh, 28 why do you take thought for clothing? 31, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what should we drink? 34, take no thought for the morrow. So this is, uh, without doubt, uh, an emphasis. And he twice says, don't take thought about what you shall eat and drink. That's in verse 25 and in verse 31. Now, The allusion, I think, is to Israel and the wilderness, that God provided all their food, and He provided their water, they had water out of the rock, and He provided their clothing, because you remember that the sandals they wore and the clothing they wore when they left Egypt was good for the entire journey to the, to the kingdom of God. Forty years or thirty-eight years of wandering now, of course, it was not exactly the the best kind of food and clothing, etc. They must have got terribly bored of wearing the same clothes and the same shoes. And it was only water. It wasn't like, you know, Coca-Cola exactly. It was water uh, from the rock uh, every day, all day. And the same with uh, with the manor, You know, they complain, don't they? This manor is boring. The point is that God provided the bare essentials for his people to get through their wilderness journey. Now, you are familiar, I believe, with 1 Corinthians 10, that the whole idea of Israel being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, in the cloud in the sense that the uh, the cloud is just water, there's water above them, water both sides of them. It was uh, a classic type of baptism, a prototype of baptism, and Paul's point is, we have been baptised into Jesus, also by immersion in water. And we also have left Egypt, and we are on a journey to the Kingdom of God. And the assurance is that God will provide clothing, food, and water. That's an amazing promise, if only we can believe it. Because really, all your basic fears about your material survival are taken away, if we can just take a deep uh, breath of of relief that I shall get through this journey. The problem is that we live in a world where those three things, food, drink, and clothing, have increasingly in our generation been glorified to the point of idols. And why is it that so many people think that they cannot possibly survive on a certain amount of money? Why do people sell their souls to their employers with all the the thought that goes with that, uh, taking second jobs, even third jobs? Why is it? Well, if you brutally analyse it, and I mean brutal, and you know, we're talking here of radical Christianity, if you brutally analyse it, what is it? Is it not to fund? Is it not to fund a load of uh, designer labels on your clothes, so that you don't drink water, but you drink uh, a whole range of, of this, that, and the other, and uh, wines and uh, and so forth. And eating, well, we want to eat manna every day. Eating out, dropping into McDonald's when you have the. Uh, the hunger pangs or the uh, the munches or, or whatever you know now that is seen in our generation, including in the poorer world that is seen as uh, normal that is seen as actually a basic human right now god 's not promising that god 's not promising that he 's promising what he promised Israel in the wilderness, the fact that many of us enjoy so much more than water, manna and the same clothes we came out of Egypt in, uh, that is, uh, that's grace. But we should not be expending our mental energy in order to achieve that, in order to get that. That's my point. And so many people, it seems to me, uh, go astray from the spirit of Christ because their mind, understandably, is full of the things of career uh, and even the things of how you spend the money that comes from that, exactly what clothes you buy, uh, and so on and so forth, which restaurant you eat at, uh, what type of uh, drink you you prefer, etc. It's all just tickling taste buds. Now, radical Christianity hits right into all that, really hard. And you know, we said in our opening prayer that uh, this is not going to be so easy. And it is not easy for any of us. On one hand, the poorer world, the poorer people, set their, their eyes on that dream whereby I can buy what clothes I want, I can eat what I want in whatever restaurant I want, and I can tickle my taste buds with the various types of, of drink, etc. And that's my aim. You, you see, true Christianity cuts above that. It gives us a mission which we are to fulfill for God, and God has promised that all that kind of material stuff he will provide, but he's not promising to provide anything too ritzy. That's, I think, the point. But the problem is also for those who have got it. This cuts to all of us, to the poor and also to the wealthy and to those who maybe are some place on the uh, spectrum of being on the way there. Because these words, or this teaching, is repeated in Luke 12. Now, we've mentioned several times that Luke 12 uh, is a kind of uh, shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's, um, it's a few significant changes. Now, there in Luke twelve twenty nine, he records this warning not to worry about what we shall eat and drink. But he only says it once, whereas here the Lord says it twice. But in Luke's record, it's prefaced by the parable of the rich fool. And on his lips we find the very same words. After he spent a lifetime amassing wealth, what does he say? He says to himself this is an internal mental attitude, Luke twelve nineteen. Eat and drink. Now, my soul, eat and drink. Eat, drink, and be merry. So, we are to understand him then as the man who has not lived by the Lord's principle of not worrying about eating and drinking. He was not poor. He was painted in the parable as fabulously rich. So, this parable, as I say, counts out the wealthy, those on the way to being wealthy, those who are trying to get wealthy, and those who don't have anything. Now, John's Gospel repeats, in essence, so much of what is in the Sermon on the Mount and uh, what is in the Synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke records, but he always seems to do so in a more uh, spiritual kind of way. When we search John's Gospel for references to eating and drinking, you find a lot of them. But they're all in a spiritual sense, in John 6, where he says, he records the Lord's teaching in John 6 about eating and drinking, where he says the one thing you need to eat and drink is my body and my blood. And we have the uh, emblems here in front of us, and we're going to break bread, as the reminder of that, that that actually is where your focus should be on assimilating him into you. And I think you find the same sort of thing going on with the talk here about don't worry about what clothing you are going to put on. Because the metaphor of putting on clothing is a major, and I mean a major, New Testament emphasis. Later on in Matthew 22, verse 11 in the parable of the supper, the wedding supper, there's a man there who has not put on the wedding garment. And we are told so many times to put on, and the metaphor is of putting on clothing, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on the last day, we shall put on immortality, be clothed with it. 2 Corinthians five three, one 1 Corinthians 15, 53, and 54. And I think The idea is that if our focus is upon putting on that garment, believing really that he sees me as if I am perfect, as if I'm righteous, and our emphasis is upon the end hope, which is to put on ultimately immortality, to be clothed upon, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.3, if that is our focus... What clothes you wear, what label you have on them, how cool they look, how snug they fit, and the whole stuff about what you shall eat and what you shall drink, all this becomes translated to a completely higher level. But that is to be our focus. And if that's your focus, putting all this teaching together, the Lord will provide your basic physical clothing, physical food and drink if your focus is upon the ultimate, food, drink, and clothing. And he really says that in so many words. Is not the life, 25 at the end, is not the life more than food and the body than than clothing? Well, <clears throat> the life, surely, he has in mind there with the article there, the life, the eternal life. And so the body, I think, is talking about the resurrection body. And I just pause to make a doctrinal point there that I would suggest that all existence in the Bible is bodily existence. There is no disembodied existence, not only in this life, uh, but also in that which is to come. Philippians 3.21, We shall be given a body like unto his, that's Jesus His glorious body. So he has a body. Remember, he shall come back and show the Jews the marks in the hands uh, where they crucified him. And I know I am out of uh, step with uh, a lot of my beloved brethren when I say this, but I will say it uh, all the same. But it it does seem to me that God exists in a corporeal sense. That God also has. I say it. Laugh at me if you wish, but I think the Bible supports this. That. God does have a bodily form of existence, and we are made in that image. So then, that's just uh, in passing, but the point is, he's saying, is not the eternal life more than food, and the body, the resurrection body, that's paralleled with the life, the life and the body are parallel, uh, and is not the body more than clothing, that is the clothing uh, of this life. Now, it all comes down, I think, to a question of identification. Whether we ultimately identify ourselves as just a person living in this world, or whether we are kingdom people, whether we have a kingdom perspective, believing that I shall live eternally in God's kingdom. And that's where the uh, majority of my life uh, is is to be. When he says the life and the body to come are more than the present life and body. The Greek for more is elsewhere translated, the greater part, the the major portion. Is not the life, the greater portion, uh, the greater part, the majority, than food, and the resurrection body, more than, the uh, of greater proportion than present clothing? So, he's saying that, The vast majority, 99.9999% of your eternal existence, of you as a person, is going to be experienced in God's kingdom, not in this life. This is just the tiny beginning. So what are you, you know, working your your heart out for and swatting away, studying away, in order to fund a, a... a very cool standard of, of clothing, food and, and drink in this world. You ever notice when you're in a, in a restaurant the price of drinks? Give me a Coke, please. Oh, you know, and, and it, it, it would cost like, you know, five times what uh, what, what a Coke would cost in, in a shop. And yet pe- people slog all day long to be able to do that. Now if you just stop and hold yourself back, from a society that is worldwide now focused upon eating out, whining and dining. And when you look at clothing, some tiny little scrap of fabric costs such a huge amount of money. You, know, you want to give your life to funding that kind of stuff? You will not know the joy and peace of true Christianity that is being offered to you. 26, Behold the birds of the air. And that word for behold does not mean glance. It means to uh, analyze, to penetrate. That's the idea. He doesn't sort of, I'm sure the Lord lifted a hand and pointed to some of these birds as they were flying around or probably on the ground around them. But his idea was really think about them because he feeds them. Now, most birds of the air, according to the law of Moses, were generally unclean. And that's sort of backed up, Acts 10 verse 12, in the uh, vision that Peter sees of unclean animals. He talks about, yeah, I saw birds and all kind of unclean things. And I think the point is that God even cares for the unclean. And I think this ties in with the Lord's opening statement uh, at the beginning of uh, the sermon, where he says that his message is for those who hunger after righteousness, those who aren't there yet, but would love to be, uh, those who are spiritually poor, poor in spirit. And so the Lord is saying that my Father cares for the unclean, even for the unclean, how much more for the clean, how much more for you. They do not sow, reap, nor gather into barns, verse 26. You look up those three words, sow, reap, and gather into bonds. You keep on meeting them later on in the Lord's teaching. And in what context? Well, Matthew records in his sowing parables, Matthew 13, 24, 31, uh, about how the seed of the gospel is sown by the preacher and then it's reaped at Christ's return, Matthew 25, 26, and you've got plenty of other references to reaping. Uh, at Christ's return, and then it is gathered in to what he calls my barn, Matthew 13, verse 30, and uh, John the Baptist had the same teaching, Matthew 3, verse 12, Jesus says that the, the reapers are the angels, Matthew 13, 22, verse ten, twenty five 25, verse 26 and 32, the reapers are the angels at the end of, of the age. So, these ideas of sowing, reaping and gathering into barns are used pretty strongly, these metaphors, about the preaching of the Gospel, the reaping of the harvest by us in this life and then by angels at the Day of Judgment, and then being gathered into barns is the language of being gathered into God's Kingdom at the Day of Judgment. What's the point there? Well, this, I would say, seamlessly fits in with what we have seen so far. The Lord is talking here on on two levels all the time. He's saying, look, there's all this uh, stuff about the body and uh, worrying about your body and about clothing and so forth. But look, those physical things, the body, the clothing, these things, please translate them into a more spiritual perspective. You worry about what clothing you shall put on, put on me, put on righteousness. Put on immortality, ultimately. And so this fits in, I think, again. He's saying, look, you can worry about sowing, reaping, and gathering into barns, like the the rich fool in the parallel passage in Luke 12, like he did, building bigger ones. But instead of that, have your focus on the sowing of the gospel, the reaping of that harvest, and gathering men and women into God's kingdom. You see, it's, it's all very well to say, don't be materialistic and don't worry about designer clothes and, and all the rest of it. But, okay, what do you replace, what do you replace all that garbage with? You see, you, you can't just sit there empty with the colossal emptiness that is in so many people just because you, you're not into the material life, the materialistic life. What do you replace it with? Well, sowing, reaping, and gathering into barns For the Gospel. And this is a great theme in the New Testament. That if you take the Lord's commission seriously to go into all the world and preach the Gospel, somehow, and take this from me, as well as from God's Word, somehow all the material things will work out. Maybe not to the extent of a cool lifestyle, but somehow they will be taken care of. When the Lord says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, lo, I am with you unto the end of the age. I would take that being with us in a whole pretty wide uh, sense, but I think including the sense I shall provide for you insofar as you follow what I'm asking you to do in preaching the gospel. He says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Which implies that God feeds the birds, the unclean even, uh, with every every mouthful. It's, It's continued in verse 30, If God so clothe the grass of the field, shall he not much more clothe you? So I think what he's saying is that what appears to be the cycle of nature, that birds feed themselves and flowers grow and blossom, etc. he's saying that, look, all these processes, ultimately God is consciously in each aspect of the process. Now, science may analyze those processes and say, look, let's say there's a water cycle. It all just goes around. There's a cycle with birds of birth, growth, procreation, death, and it all sort of cycles on. But the point is that God is in all that. Problem is, we can sense that there is this sort of cycle of nature that God has sort of wound up the whole of creation, left it running on clockwork, tick-tock, tick-tock, and occasionally he sort of jumps in and interferes with it in response to human prayer or because he wants to direct something in a certain way. And that's called the hand of providence. Well, I disagree with that. Because this and so many other teachings of the Bible, especially in, in the Psalms and in Job, are teaching us that God is actually consciously involved, consciously involved in absolutely every uh, movement in these processes. God feeds the birds. Not one of them falls from the air without your father, Jesus said, and he means without your father's knowledge, presence, without his involvement. It's not as if God has switched off looking someplace else uh, and just letting this wonderful creation tick-tock on clockwork. I'll give you an example. It's actually a real-life example from my own small life. Um, I was once in, uh, in Ireland many years ago and uh, I was booked on a ferry to come back to, to England and <clears throat> I was driving to the, uh, to the terminal And I looked again at my ticket, and I realized that I totally got the time wrong. And I got a ticket, and it it said, whatever it was, I believe it was in the evening, ten o'clock or whatever, departure, and it was already, you know, half past ten, and I, I was a good hour away. So I thought, well, you know, what to do? Well I prayed about it, and I kept on driving, and I got there to find a huge load of cars backed up and, oh, yeah, the ferry had been uh, delayed, everyone was mad, the ferry's been delayed for four hours. Well, that suited me fine. Now, you could say, yeah, well, everything was just going on by by clockwork, and, uh, well, yeah, God suddenly noticed uh, at half past ten that evening that that Duncan had a problem, so he sort of dashed in there and, and, and sort of got the ferry delayed for me. Yeah, you could look at it that way, or you could look at it another way, that, you know, God is making the natural creation, and let's imagine this in the uh, human world, but he's making timetables operate, and ferries leave, depart, arrive, etc., as a conscious act. Now, if you understand that, that he's consciously doing this, that he is consciously involved, it makes faith in prayer, shall I say, a bit easier, because you realize it is nothing for him to delay it, therefore... This time, by some hours. Whereas if you think that God sort of wound everything up on clockwork, and it's all taken away, and the, the duty of prayer is to sort of say, Hey God, well, hi, hello, can you hear me? There's a problem here. Can you just rush down here and sort it out? Well, yeah, I'm not mocking that, but I'm saying, if you see catch my drift, that once you understand that God is, is consciously doing everything, then you see life... Somewhat differently, and it is not so, so much as it were to ask yourself to believe that God can just make the ferry depart a little bit later. Or that He can change the timetable, no problem at all. You see, Joshua had this faith, didn't he? With making the sun stand still. You could say, well there's no way that could happen. Sorry, but it's all set up. It's all on clockwork. But, no. He realized that God makes the sun, as Jesus said, rise, and he makes it set. In other words, in what, to human observation, looks like an absolutely predictable pattern that is on some kind of clockwork that has to happen, actually that's just observation. That is true. That is true observation. But I'm saying that God consciously is making those things happen. Are you not better, verse uh, 26, are you not much better than those birds of the air whom God is feeding? And the Lord uses this word, much better, three times. He says in Matthew ten thirty-one, Are you not better than many sparrows? Is not a man much better, Matthew 12, verse 12, uh, than a sheep? Just love the Lord, don't you? The, the way that he must have observed sparrows... Birds, sheep, and just reflected that we are of far more value to God than them, and yet He takes so much thought for them. And then twenty-seven, why, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit under His stature, or as the word can also mean under His age? Now, again and again, the emphasis is upon the state of the of the heart, and I think the Lord is saying. Oh, implying, look, God is the one who takes incredible thought. And so, don't you worry, he's going to take thought for you. Let him do the taking of thought. Don't you see how amazing is his taking of thought? So let him do that, and don't you worry about it. You can't add anything to your physical height or to your age. As I say, the word can be translated both ways. Same uh, word in verse thirty-three. Same Greek word. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, you cannot add to your age. You certainly cannot add eternity to your age. But God can. Like God takes thought, you can't. Don't even bother. So then, <clears throat> all these things shall be added unto you, you cannot add anything to your physical secular life. Now that, that is a wonderful idea when you think about it, because he's inviting us to see um, ourselves, our physical self, as we came into this world, as one thing, and he's saying you can add nothing to that. That is how you were. Paul, you know, 1 Timothy 6, 7, we came into this world with nothing, and we leave this world with nothing. We, in that sense, uh, have nothing added to us, and we exit this world without anything added. The only thing that can be added to us is eternity, and that is by God. Certainly no immortal soul in view here. Immortality clearly uh, conditional, something that must be added. Now again, there's a rising or has arisen within our so-called culture all over the world in the 21st century, uh, an obsession with adding to your age. Huge amount of effort and worry goes into this, should I eat that, should I not eat that, should I this or should I that, so that it's it's good good for your health, and oh, well, I I want to worry about that because I want to live longer to, well, I guess, serve God. See, what the Lord is saying is take no thought about any of that. Get on with serving God, and The point is, where's your heart? If your heart is caught up with issues of what I shall uh, eat in order to add a few years to my life, to my age, he's saying, no, your heart is in the wrong place. See, the focus is on your thinking all the time. Growth, in that sense, is natural. It's the same word, actually, used in Luke 2.52 about the Lord Jesus, that he grew in stature. Before God and man, as if you know it's a natural uh, kind of kind of process. We too want to grow up. Paul says, using the same word, Ephesians four thirteen, into the stature of the fullness or the maturity of Christ. And again, we see the theme repeated. Taking a physical, secular concern, how can I live a bit longer? How can I add something to my stature? And the Lord saying, Nah. And why about that physically? Focus upon growing up into the stature of the Lord Jesus, into his age, into his maturity. And all the other stuff will be added to you, and uh, you could add, and when your number comes up, it will come up. So, consider, he says, again... Verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. And yes, I'm sure he did point to them as they were growing there where he was teaching. But again, this word does not mean to glance at. It means to study deeply. And so the Lord is really drawing attention to the the physical world around us in order to try to get the point over. That if you just really look at nature, you see on every hand... God's encouragement to you to not be materialistic, that He will provide. He saw in chapter 6, verse 26, behold the fowls of the air, the birds of the air, not glance at them, but look deeply, uh, penetrate them, is the uh, is the meaning of the word. Consider how they grow, he says there in uh, in 28. It could mean how big they grow, to what great extent. That is, from the very small beginnings. But I think perhaps the, the idea really means, look at the process. In what way they grow. And that process is beautifully natural. Absolutely natural and given by God. They do not toil, and they do not spin. They do not labor with their hands. A heavy manual labor is the idea, and they don't spin. And incidentally, you see there something that's quite typical in the Lord's teaching, how in so much of his teaching, he angles it uh, at men, and then at women. You see that in some of the parables. He talks about, for example, uh, two men shall be working in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. And then he says, and two women shall be, be, be grinding, one shall be taken, the other left. And here again, for men, they don't toil, for women, they don't spin. And uh, the more you look for it, the more you see that uh, sort of dual uh, reference in the Lord's teaching. His sensitivity to people, uh, all people, uh, is amazing. And of course, he was many centuries, a couple of millennia, ahead of his time in, in all that. And of course, the allusion is to the curse of labor that came upon Adam in the Garden of Eden. And uh, I think he's saying, "Don't glorify the curse." How can we glorify the curse? Well, uh, by loving your daily work and getting so caught up in it for its own sake that the things of the thinking about God's kingdom go out the window. On the basis that, "Yeah, but I'm doing all this for God. I'm doing all this for people." You'll be careful. And I can I mean, yeah, you know, Each life is different. Each situation is different. But I can simply. Raise the uh, caveat to the uh, warning that you might be glorifying the curse. Classic one would be early retirement. Can I get off early? Or have I got, well, nothing to do? Might as well stay on at work. I'd go crazy if I didn't go to work. You know? When there is so much else that you can be doing for the Lord. He says, Twenty-nine. Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed, was not clothed like one of these. Now again, when you read the idea or meet the idea of being clothed in glory, immediately the mind goes to the, the later New Testament references to being clothed in glory at Christ's return. I'll just give you a few from Revelation. Revelation 3 verse 5 verse 18, chapter 7 verse 9 and 13, 19 verse 8. So again, I think he's saying, look, you can be clothed in glory, both in this life and finally in the life that is to come. You focus upon that, rather than dressing yourself up and looking in the mirror and thinking, ah, yeah, well if I buy the the piece of clothing that's another 20 euros, I will look a little bit cooler, a little bit smarter, etc. And the Lord is, is totally shifting our emphasis away from that. Now, I'm aware this is not what you want to hear. And that's why we started out with a, with a prayer that the Lord would help us to accept the truth of what he's saying. But of course, as I say, the implication all the way through is that you are to put your, your concern into something else. And that something else is spiritual. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field that today is and tomorrow is cast into the fire, shall he not much more clothe you? Well, the idea of um, being cast into the fire to be burnt up, this is very much a common theme in the Lord as a metaphor for condemnation. It does describe the, the final condemnation of the wicked. And I think the Lord is, is saying here, look, those people who are not going to make it into God's kingdom, those people who maybe are responsible but will come to the day of judgment and be condemned, you know what? God makes, them, makes their heart tick every beat, every, every second, every, every moment. He gives them air, He feeds them, clothes them, etc. How much more is He not going to do that for you, who are kingdom people? O oh, you of little faith. Now I think the little faith, then, in the context, is little faith in the fact that you will be saved. Not little faith, necessarily, that God will provide for me materially, but rather little faith in the context that you will be saved. And that, if you look at the other three references in Matthew, Matthew 8, 14, 31, and 16, verse 8, every time the Lord rebukes them for being of little faith, It seems to be in the context of believing that they will be saved. Believing that they will be in God's kingdom. That is uh, the the rebuke. Because if you really believe that you will be there, then all these other issues go into insignificance. Now, verse 31. Don't worry about... uh, what you shall eat, drink, or be clothed with, because, 32, your father knows that you have need of all these things. The question, of course, is, well, how does he provide? You know, does clothing float down from heaven? Does, you know, bottles of water suddenly appear on tables? How, actually, how mechanically does this work out? Well, all I can say is, along with David, that I have yet to see the seed of the righteous begging bread, that somehow God does provide. But to just throw another perspective on that, these same words are used in Matthew 25 three times, verses 36, 38, and 43, about how in the last day the Lord is going to say to people, well done, when I was hungry you fed me, thirsty you gave me something to drink, and when I didn't have clothes you gave them to me. And you will say to the rejected, look, I was in need of those three things, food, water, and clothing, and you never gave them to me. The implication could be that the, the question as to how this will be provided is answered in through the ecclesia, through the body of Christ, through your brothers and sisters in Christ, through whom God and the Lord Jesus will work. But of course, in that answer, there is then the possibility for dysfunction, for malfunction, whereby actually the others don't provide those things. That is quite possible. So, it could happen, it seems to me. Now, all those things, he says, the Gentiles seek. Now, don't forget, the Jewish audience to whom the Lord was first speaking were absolutely uh, against the Gentiles, and uh, they consider themselves better than the Gentiles. And the Lord is saying, but you are no better than Gentiles if you are worried about all these things. You are just like the world. And when he says, the Gentiles seek these things... So any Old Testament mind, the mind that have gone to Isaiah 11.10, where we read that the Gentiles shall finally seek unto Jesus as their Saviour. And again, the implication is, don't seek all these things, but seek Him, and all this stuff will be added unto you in that tremendous covenant of 32. Your Heavenly Father, the God who is in heaven, so, if you like, physically far away from us, He knows that you have need of all these things. And uh, the Greek word translated all, hapas, it does literally mean each and every one. God knows each and every need. There is the great sense, ah, but you don't understand, life's complicated. You know, look on Facebook profiles, under relationship status, people love to put out, complicated." Ach, well, yeah, my life's complicated. Yeah, it may be. But, you know, God knows hapas. He knows each and every one of your and my needs. And he will provide. The point is, if we focus upon the ultimate food, clothing, and, and, and drink. And so he says, seek first. 33. Proton. Seek above all things the things of God's kingdom. And... All this other stuff will be added unto you. And it doesn't mean we'll seek that first, and all the other stuff secondly. That would be a mistaken impression. The idea is to seek above all things His kingdom. And all these other things will work out. And we we say when we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. That is not simply a praying for the second coming. It is that. But it is not only that. It is a desire to see the things of God's kingdom uh, glorified, "...in our lives, extend through us, and seek his righteousness..." The Sermon on the Mount begins, "...blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who want to be more righteous than they are." If you seek that, he's saying, yeah, if you carry on being like that, wanting to be more righteous, eager for uh, achieving his righteousness, and receiving his righteousness, being clothed in his righteousness all these other things will be provided, will be added unto you. God wants to give us his kingdom. And so, 34, take no thought for the morrow. Well, in verse 30, he has just said that the grass of the field, tomorrow, is thrown into the fire. And it seems to me that the two tomorrow's are referring to the same thing. They are referring to the day of condemnation. And that actually, it seems, in first century Jewish thought was uh, something that they understood, that the great tomorrow was the day of judgment. So we said in verse 30 that uh, the grass of the field is tomorrow thrown into the fire. Jesus is saying, you know, if God worries so much and cares so much and provides for those who he's ultimately going to condemn, how much more will he not care for you? So, I would take that as a cue for interpreting in that context, 34, don't worry about tomorrow, about judgment day, because tomorrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And I think he could be saying, yes, there will be evil for some in that day, but don't you worry about it. You are secured in me. So he's rounding off all his exhortation about not worrying about material things by saying, look, be filled with the things of God's kingdom, King Dom, his domination of you by his rulership over you, by his principles, the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, guiding your life and ruling your life. Let that be your focus. And then all this material stuff will be added unto you. And you know what? And the the, the trick is in the tale here." in 34, as it so often is in the Lord's teaching, that the final part of his teaching uh, flicks up the, uh, as I say, by a, a trick of the tail, uh, he, he, he brings up the, the ultimate issue. He's saying don't worry about all that material stuff, food, drink, clothing, worry about getting the ultimate food and drink uh, of my kingdom, clothed in my righteousness, and don't even worry about condemnation. Take no thought. Sufficient under the day is the evil thereof for those for whom it's prepared. But if you are kingdom people, and if your mind is filled with the things of of my kingdom, you don't have to worry about that either. Now this is a fantastic way of life. This is an amazing way of life. That we can live assured that God is going to provide the bare basics, that we are not going to die of hunger, that he will provide, and that we shall ultimately live forever in his kingdom, and that if our mission in this life is not designer clothing, if it's not tickling taste buds and eating, whining, and dining, etc., but instead it is sowing the gospel, reaping the gospel, gathering into barns, all this stuff will be added, and you don't have to worry about condemnation. The fear that is... At, at the root of so much psychosis, depression, etc., is taken away. The sense of meaninglessness, that what am I doing all this for? What am I studying for? What am I working for? Snogging away? Is it not just to, you know, to finance the next uh, cappuccino or whatever? Um, yeah, all that is taken away. And that at last we have a life that is worth living with a realistic goal in view... And not even having to fear condemnation, because we are secured in Christ.